Welcome to episode 56 of the Addiction Solution Podcast. I'm Michelle Dunbar, Mark Sharon, Stephen Slate, and I will be talking about how um, insensitive and uncaring it is when you tell people they have a choice and that there's hope and they can overcome their alcohol and drug problems. <laughs> I'll explain that later. Yeah, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> we offer two ways to work privately with a Freedom Model instructor. The first way is at our beautiful St. Jude Retreat. Um, and the second way is via Zoom with our at-home Freedom Model private instruction program. You can get information about our retreat at SoberForever.net. That's one word, Sober Forever. And um, at TheFreedomModel.org. And you can learn about our at-home private instruction program at leaveaddictionbehind.com. So what was I talking about? Like how insensitive and uncaring we are because we give people hope. Well, we we get uh, people will dial in or they will give us emails or message us and say, you know, you, you shouldn't be telling people they can get over the problem. This is an incurable progressive disease. Yes. And it's insensitive to teach them that they can get over this. They need to learn to adapt to it. They need to learn to overcome it daily. They need to accept that their disease. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, what was the comment you got recently? Well, I we got an email from someone who uh who was happened to be on our email list. And, um, and she, why, don't, why don't you find it on your phone? <laughs> I'll find it on my phone yeah. and I, I'll read it. It was, you know, and I don't mind getting these because it means that we're reaching people. Um, and I, I expect to, to get a certain amount of this because the addiction disease, uh, is a religion. Yeah. I mean, and people feel very, very strongly about it. And, and, and I feel so sad for a lot of those people who are stuck in that mode of thinking she said people who go to your program hear what they want to hear you are careless and insensitive to think that you can take an alcoholic and make them believe they can overcome their addiction without definitive direction which i'm not sure what definitive direction means i, I think that means directing them that they have to be in abstinent yeah. and in recovery all the time Forever. And, um and and i clearly that was from someone who has had someone they love who is an alcoholic, she believes is an alcoholic, because, you know, we don't like that terminology. We don't use it. Um, we use it in some of our writings and stuff because it's what people understand. Yeah, you have to use the words people understand. Yep, and um, and then we explain how it doesn't exist, yeah. pretty much. Um, and um, But this is somebody who wanted desperately to force someone she loves to stop drinking. I just want to say something quick. When you say it doesn't exist, we're not saying that drinking and drug problems don't exist. Um, Obviously, they do. We've all experienced it ourselves, and we've also felt hopeless ourselves at one time. What we're saying is that the idea that you are compelled to use beyond your will and that you... you That you're doomed to be that way forever. And that there's an external disease that's doing this to you beyond your control, like cancer. That's what we mean. Uh, A drinking problem in that context doesn't exist. What does exist is a preference for heavy use yeah. um, and reasons. Yeah, for a person that. who is convinced that they need to use heavily, that it's the only thing that can sort of make them feel right or feel happy or get them through their stress. They, they, they are convinced that they really, really need it. Yeah, that um, does exist. Yeah, that's the pain Absolutely. that we all went through, yeah. was being convinced we needed it and that it was hard to stop. 
And, and that's where, you know, like that's where for all of us, it was compassionate to somebody to say to us, you don't have a disease, right? You can change. This doesn't have to go on for the rest of your life. You don't even need to go to meetings for the rest of your life. Um, you don't, you know, you, it, it, you're just doing this to try to feel good, to feel happy. And so let's wrap our mind around uh, if you can, if you can be happier without it. Um, to me, that was incredibly compassionate because it helped me to change. Right. And, and to hear that I'm not like morally flawed. I'm, I don't have these defects of character that make me a crappy person. Yeah. I'm not totally self will run riot, whatever it is. I mean, I, I, to me, it's a lot more compassionate to look at somebody and say, hey, you really, there's something about drinking that you really, really like. Let's figure out what that is. And by the way, it doesn't make you a bad person that you like it. Yeah. You know, and, um, but, but at the same token, if you feel like if you, you're ready to make a change and you think you can be happier without it, let's explore what that looks like. Yeah. Well, pe- people have a tendency to conflate or um, join together bad actions you do while drinking and the act of drinking. Right. Mm-hmm. So so the act of drinking is not a moral issue. It's it's a preference and it's an activity, right? Now, if you decide to steal a car or beat your wife while you're drunk, if that's a decision you make, um, then that's a decision you make and that, that can make you a bad person. Right? Sure, that, that's a, absolutely. That's a pretty shitty thing, okay? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I want to be careful here that we're not saying that if you are the type of person that goes wild when you drink and you hurt people. Right. Um, That's and, something and, different. Right. And you're a family member of somebody and you live with somebody like that. Yeah. I get why you absolutely you, know, you have that view. But the actual act of drinking, which millions upon millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people do every day, is not necessarily a moral issue. It doesn't... And the, the term you came up with with earlier character defects right Mm -hmm. that's a that's a made-up term that that's not Mm -hmm. a that's not a philosophy but aa uses that term very loosely that there are defects of character you have to mend your your character defects i don't know what they mean by that i don't think anybody does because it's never explained (laughs) so so what happens is you go to meetings and you mention something that maybe the crowd the cult crowd doesn't agree with and boy, does that term come out. <laughs> and they'll, they'll hammer the daylights out of you that you have character defects that need mending and fixing immediately or else the hammer of John Barleycorn is going to take yeah, it out you're on gonna you. Yeah, you're going to be drunk. You know? The hammer you know? of John Barleycorn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the Bill Wilson quote. He said, you better do God's will or the hammer of John Barleycorn will make you do it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know. Is that in the big book? No, no, no. That's, <laughs> no, in, that's one in one of the other, other books. Yeah, that's it. I think pass it on. Uh, yeah. Or AA comes of age, I think. But so, you know, here's the thing. Since at least, you know, some form of the disease concept is, has been around for 200 years, but it did really take off with, uh, with AA. And when Marty Mann, uh, the first female AA member? Yep. Right? Yes. Yeah. Correct. When she, she started the National Council on Alcoholism... And, right. Which is now called the NCADD, like yeah. National Council on Alcohol and, and Drug Disorders. Disorder, yeah, Alcohol and Drug Disorders. Is that what it yeah. is? And and she pushed right out of the gate, and that was in like 1942 or something, I think, when she started that. 
And and she she came out with the message that we have to accept this disease model because it is compassionate. Right. right? Yes. Because otherwise we're judging people as, you know, bad and we're blaming them. And if we call it a disease, people will get help. And that's been the argument since 1942. And I said, you know, I know you know, 15 years ago when I started trying to write a book, I went through every disease argument that I could find. And I would find people Mm -hmm. professing the disease argument. And it would always be a shoddy argument, like by very serious people. And, you know, we quote one of them in, in, um, in the appendix B on the disease model. Yes. And it's Alan Leshner. I mean, he was the head of NIDA. And, you know, he says, like, he wrote this big paper that's taken very seriously. And, like, half of the paper is, is just sort of saying, look, we have to accept this so that we can get people the treatment they need. This is the compassionate way. Like, kind of, it doesn't matter if it's really a disease or not. Right. It's the compassionate thing to do to say it's a disease. And, and, and I've found that, it's, it's been disappearing a little bit lately because people are more bought into the disease thing, it seems like. But when I was really heavily reviewing all this stuff, every single like polemic in favor of the disease, its main point was, th- this is a compassionate belief system, so get on board, or, or you are one of these mean people or that be wants judged. to judge people, send them all to jail. <laughs> you know, they pit... Either we call it a disease or we send people to jail. Well, like, right. Where did you come up with that? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. This is you're bringing up something that historically I think the listeners might find interesting. When Marty Mann did that, when Bill Wilson started AA and then Marty Mann moved in this direction, you have to understand where society was. It was the temperance movement backed by religious organizations. So drinking was seen as a moral. It was. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the compassion argument in the populace in the 30s, 40s and 50s, it worked. The reason by the 50s when they declared it a disease in the early 50s and beyond, it kind of fell out of favor and was kind of a struggle to have the population believe that is because the idea of drinking as a moral problem fell out of favor in Mm -hmm. our society. So when when that fell out of favor, they had to come up with all these other things to justify this infrastructure that had been built, that mainly treatment. Um, and so what they did is they, they married mental health at that point. So you see in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and now they married mental health instead of the religious angle, which was you're a bad person if you drink. <laughs> yeah. Okay? So, but, but throughout all of this shifting and manipulating of people is this undercurrent that you know, you're a pretty shitty person if you put a needle in your arm. And fundamentally, what you do in a back room to feel good really isn't anybody's business. You know, it's not a moral issue. Like I said, if you decide to go rip off the corner store and put a gun in somebody's face to deal with your habit, to pay for your habit, I get it. That's shitty. You know, that's terrible. Um, but the act itself, you know, it's, it's all the view and, and get rid of that yeah. view. And so what you're saying is there was an undercurrent in the treatment system that just by sticking a needle in your arm, you're shitty. Yes. But yes. what you're saying is, no, you're not. Right. 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 Um, yeah. 
Okay, I just wanted to make sure that was clear. Yes. It sounded like you were saying it. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I want to make Look sure the you. listeners know. Right, yes. Um, But, uh, no, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, that when he was talking, there's not much difference between, I mean, the reason that, that alcohol is called spirits, right? Mm-hmm. Because if people got drunk, they it would be like they were being possessed by, like, evil spirits, right? Right. So, and, and is there much difference between the treatment that happens now and back then, when there was exorcisms and all this, uh, this kind of hocus pocus kind of stuff that was to try and cure you of your evil possession, you know, if you were somebody that kept drinking and drinking and drinking, and then of course we well, had what does what is uh, Gabarmate's book called? <laughs> what is it called? in the realm of hungry ghosts? Yes. Yeah. So that's like you got you know you got the, you got some sort of spirit there, and and in his his model, it is this uh, it's this, the trauma that imprinted on your brain something that makes you need to now drink or drug like crazy. Yeah. I'm writing an article about that right now. And uh, that's just silliness. So, so yeah. So what is the so, difference? So what, there is, is there a difference with the treatment now? And, I mean, you think about women, too. Women, if they, you know, came of age and were going through they were said to have hysteria. Yeah. And so, so there's all of this mental health and well, you know, uh, we have there's a couple prominent psychiatrist authors that would say there's no such thing as mental illness, um, but but there's this all of this industry built around trying to control people. That's what it trying comes to down control to. their behaviors That's because they're not behaving the way that society deems most acceptable. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and so t- so today I would argue that the treatment that's being done today, and probably people would take offense to this is not that much different than no. what was being done in the 1800s. It's, it's, not. it's just dressed up with more medical jargon. Yeah. And it's dressed up with brain scans and that kind of thing, but it's all coming from the same place. Yes, of you're behaving badly and we need to correct your behavior. Right. Yeah. You know, and so... The current religion mixes, mixes a bunch of medications with psychodrama, group therapy... And if you sit at a group therapy session, it is a religious experience. There's nothing productive happening. No. It's it's a strange ritual. Mm-hmm. And and I can tell you a lot about that because as, <laughs> a, as a young man being indoctrinated into it and then and it was a an absolute religion in my family. Yeah. And then being mandated by the government, which is sort of strange. Um, into a mental hospital where I had to spend every day from 9 to 5 sitting in a circle with my priest or pastor, the counselor, sitting in the middle and saying, you have to talk about this because you're a bad person while they're saying, you're not a bad person. Meanwhile, suffering from a disease that makes you a bad person. (laughs) Yes. Meanwhile, the implication is that you are a bad person because guess what? I'm in a mental hospital because and I'm I'm mandated here by the law enforcement (laughs) (laughs) right it's my prison now here's what's the the interesting part I was in that place because I broke the law drunk drinking and driving right crashed the car and caused some trouble with the police that I would deem as law breaking right Mm -hmm. it's that's that's what I was starting out with that was bad. You could say, probably not a wise idea. You could have killed some people. 
Um, but the following 18 months of my life, I paid for that situation by having to sit in a religious circle in a mental hospital. What did the two have to do with each other? Yeah. Right. What did they have to do with each other? I paid the fine. I went to jail. I already did that. Yeah. Six months later, I'm indoctrinated where every day a big locked steel door closes behind me and I sit in circles with my grand poobah having to talk about shit that just was totally irrelevant to the charge that got me there. Yeah. So, but they're connected. Mm-hmm. And, and that's and where the confusion comes supposedly that's from. compassionate. Right. Yeah, and supposedly that's compassionate. Yeah, so let's let's talk about it. Is it... Is the disease model really compassionate? Well, here here are some facts, right? Um, the addiction rate hasn't gone down. Nope. Since it's been adopted. That's right. And since it's been more heavily and widely accepted, the addiction rate in, in the population has not gone down. The recovery rate has not gone down, right? So even like the percentage of... Or, or it's not gone up. Right. That's what, that's, right. what am I saying? Yeah. Yes. It's not gone up. I knew it. Right? And it's like, I mean, now there's like small differences where you see like the 2002 currently recovered rate for heroin users was um, 89%. That's, that's that's high. The that's, currently recovered rate. Yeah. That's higher than it is for alcohol, which right. the currently recovered rate is 75%. And then in 2012, you know, um, and that is, you know, by that point, the brain disease model has really taken over and really convinced people. Yes. Right? Yeah. And by that point, the currently recovered rate for heroin is 83%. So it's on its way down. Yeah. yeah. So it, 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 it's going down. So is it compassionate? Is it compassionate to teach this to people? Um well, it doesn't seem to be getting good results, right? And, and then <laughs> we can see that in the numbers but, clearly. So part of the promise is, though, oh, it will reduce stigma, and um, and that's a nice thing, right? Sure. And we put this in the appendix B as well, where ten years apart, ninety six to two thousand six, uh, looking specifically at the effect of acceptance of brain disease models on uh, schizophrenia and uh, drug and alcohol addictions. And stigma did not decrease at Mm -hmm. all, even though acceptance went up massively of the idea that it's a brain disease. Yeah, I never... And and the stigma actually went up in some domains. which makes sense to me. Me too. I never understood... On its face, this argument that if you disease somebody, the stigma somehow goes away. And the reason is, is because intuitively, deep down inside, every single person that thinks they believe in the disease doesn't really. They're two or three facts away from it all cascading down. And in the back of their mind, they're going, this this ain't cancer. This right. Cancer. Yeah. You can see you know, a clear difference. You can. And and so it's it's a really tough sell. So... When somebody has cancer, people immediately, immediately go, oh, God, I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah. When somebody says, yeah, my son's a heroin addict, they go on the outside, oh, I'm so sorry. But inside they're going, Jesus, I'm glad that ain't happening with me. That, that's a pain in the ass. Yeah. You know, what's the kid, a junkie, right? The stigma yeah. exists whether they're diseased or not well, because they know it's a behavior. You don't, cancer isn't a behavior. 
Yeah. Well, and you're you're saddled with this disease label, right? And so now, if the people that do believe it, that do buy into it, once an addict, always an addict, they just assume that you're you're a ticking time bomb and that everybody's got to walk on eggshells around you. You don't want to set this person off. And in the minute, like I can remember when I got sober and I was in AA, like how differently my family treated me. Yeah. You know, Bizarre. like especially my, my cousins and stuff that I, mm-hmm. I used to spend a lot of time with. And I can remember the first time I went to a wedding and everybody was like, like not wanting to drink around me. And it was it was awkward and weird and, and uncomfortable. Then, and then eventually the people that believe in the disease on both sides start to resent the situation. Yeah. yeah. Because everybody's got to put up with now. You being this, delicate. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Everybody walking on eggshells and getting, you know, they feel like you're getting special treatment because yeah. you've, because look at Michelle, she did this wonderful thing and it's like uh, not drinking. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, even then it didn't feel like a big deal to me. Yeah. yeah. And, and so is it compassionate to brand people with right. a trait that will make them that supposedly will make them any second just yeah run down to the city and buy heroin and, and start robbing people that's kind of like it's kind of the idea and, and like no logically it is not compassionate uh, to brand people with that and especially because it simply isn't true right. I don't know how fully accepted it's become I think it's become like a lot of things with social media, a certain amount of pressure to conform and say you believe it. Yes, because, I agree. Because being in the business for 31 years of helping this population, one of the things I've found is that when you talk... Right now I'm doing a bunch of interviews on national radio. Mm-hmm. I have yet to have a single host, and there's been dozens now, when I said it's not a disease. I've never had a host say, yes, it is. Yeah. Not one. And yeah, these that's are people, interesting. I, this is all across the country. Yeah. Not one. They go, you know, I, I agree. Yeah. I, I've always felt that way. Then they have a lot of questions. And the questions are very pointed about what we're talking about here. People intuitively know it's not cancer. I'm going to keep saying that on the show because in their heart, they're saying it just doesn't make sense. You know? Yeah. And when you pull it apart, it, it the disease doesn't exist. It really is a yeah. preference. Yeah. And so... We're telling people they have a choice, and you know, like you got those emails, I, I get them. Too. Oh, yeah, I used to get a lot more. Um, my website traffic is down, so I don't get as many. <laughs> it's kind of a blessing and a curse. Yeah, it is. I haven't been writing many articles like at all. Yeah, <laughs> three in the past two years. I don't know, <laughs> but um. But I would get those that like that say like, well, you must hate people. Why are you so mean to them? And um, and and I'm trying to like let 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 them know like, hey, I sincerely believe it's wonderful to know that it's a choice. Yes. And, and, and there's no judgment in whether it's good or bad when you just say, well, like, look, you have a choice. That that just is what it is. Um, and it's the, you know, and, and ultimately making a choice is the only thing that's going to help people out of it. Yes. In the end, that's the only way people change. Yeah. It's the only way. There's, there's, there's nothing that can come into you and change 
your preference. Yeah. You know, from the outside. No. And and so there's there has to be it's what we call this is a false dichotomy. Yeah. You know that there's it's either this or it's that. It's yes. either you th- you're compassionate and so you call it a disease. Or you're a monster because you think people are, are bad and horrible and you just want them all to be jailed. <laughs> um, and it, there's, it's neither of those things. Right. The most compassionate thing you can do with people that have a problem is yeah. solve it. Yeah, help them, <laughs> solve help it. them solve it. Yeah. yeah, and show them that they have the power within them. That the answer that, is them. That the answer is them, and that they can move forward in their lives and be free. And if they see themselves running into some problems later, they already can know how to fix it. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's the <laughs> I suppose teach a man to fish, give him a fish. I suppose. Um, yeah, it's it, sort of like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think yeah. All right, we've run into what treatment is here a lot in this conversation, bringing up your experiences. And um, I, you know, more and more people that have done our program lately are saying like, thank God I'm free. Like they're using the word freedom a lot and I'm free now. And if you, you know, if you, if you look at what goes on in treatment, you know, you might go in there and say, I really want to drink, but I really got to stop. Um, and they'll be like, well, you can't stop. And, um, you have to admit you can't stop. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You have yeah. to admit you have no control. It's like, and you'll be like, well, yeah, I stopped for like two years once before. And you'll be like, well, you can't, you know what I mean? Like, I, I always tell people about the time I, I told that first counselor about when I stopped <laughs> using heroin for three months recently. He's like, no, you didn't. You didn't do that. And I'm like... Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, that. I, I, I actually down. did. It's impossible for people to quit heroin on their own, right? And what you you know, and a big argument ensued. It's like, dude, I'm using heroin now, and I'm not trying to lie to you, but I did stop for three months. Like, yeah, can we just get in the, past in the this? fall? Like, let's move along. It's like, no. And he eventually said, the only way. He's like, well, there's one way you could have quit on your own, and that's if you were doing fake heroin all along. <laughs> what what an idiot. <laughs> I, to this day, it, I that, can't believe somebody would say that. That dumb. Yeah. That's like incredibly stupid. And this is, this is 23 years ago. Um, oh my gosh. And, but, so you enter, what treatment is, is this weird Orwellian world where you have yes. to deny your own experience. Rewrite your history. That's Rewrite it. your history. And you under, and, and if you, like... If you say, like, well, I love getting high, they're like, no, you don't. You're just addicted, and that's your addiction talking. You know, you hate it. And so you have to, like, deny all of your own thoughts and experience. Yeah, that is definitely not compassionate. And it's No, it's not <laughs> compassionate. And But there's compassionate people there, and that's where it gets I confusing. Know, that, that is true. There's, really, there's really nice they really people do working well. there, a that's, lot of them. That's what and, it is. And yeah. yeah, but but so... You're in a conformity factory. That's all it is. Yes. Well, and, and, and I think the best the best word you've ever used, and I, I think it's in the book quite a bit, and that's the charade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You really feel like you're in this altered universe talking to people and you're rewriting your history and you know it. Yeah. And you know it. And sometimes they got you over a barrel with your rights like they did with me. And you're like, God, I got to play this dumb game. Yeah. Right. If I want to ever drive a car again. Yeah. yeah. And have that's, my freedom. Yeah. That's what I, I was tweeting about that last night. I was like, look, um, 
the customers of treatment are parents, spouses, school administrators, the legal the system, the state legal mm -hmm. system. Those are those are the real customers. They're trying to buy enforcement of social norms. They're trying to buy abstinence. Mm -hmm. They're they're trying they're trying to and then the people working there are using a lie to make you quit and to kind of kind of save face while you're doing it. Yeah. Like, you know, everybody's telling you, you know, because you drink such and such amount uh, or frequency that you're an alcoholic and now you have to quit. And instead of just saying, I would like you to cut that back, I would like you to quit. You know, I would just like it. It would just make me happy. It would make me happy, Instead, yep. we send them into a into a, this conformity factory that comes up with a lie with to say you have a disease and it's impossible for you to ever drink in any normal way. Therefore, you have to do it. I got you cornered yeah. on yeah. this. Yeah. And now your now your relationship with let's let's say your husband or your wife is now mangled into this system. This mm -hmm. system where you're identified as an addict who's not allowed to ever drink again. And there, you know, it's not about what. Here's here's the main point. It's not about you figuring out what you want. Nope. What would make you happy? It's not even. It's not even asked. It's not in. No. Right. It's not even. It's not even mentioned. No. It's it's about. They've 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 got the conclusion. You have to quit forever, and they're going to force it upon you by lying to you and fitting you into this charade where you go through these motions. Where you pretend like you're doing something, it's like, yeah, I'm working on my disease. So now you have to quit, and you have to humiliate yourself by pretending you didn't want to use drugs as much as you did. Yeah, you were diseased the and out of control. Right, the rewriting you have to of humiliate history. yourself, and I'm working hard to not do it, and it's utterly demoralizing. And once you start believing lies like that, or you parrot them so much and yes. live by them and act. You act. There's people that can't tell their parents, their husband, their wife that I was using drugs a lot because I liked it. Even if it's because I thought I needed it. Because I, I, that's how I look at my situation. Yeah, me I too. I both liked it and thought I needed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, me too. But you, if you say that, you know, I've gotten angry letters from wives saying I, I I I've been reading your stuff and I think that what you're saying is makes sense making sense but I don't know how I could ever think that my husband had a choice because then I would think he's an awful person because he chose alcohol over me yeah right, I, I, right. there's that false dichotomy again yes it, yeah and um but so the the answer of like this is what I've wanted to do and to just be a man and stand behind what you're doing is not allowed and you crush down your nature as an individual and I don't mean just being a man I mean being a woman yeah, being, being a, a person being a person that is an individual that is autonomous that is in charge of their own behaviors you have to pretend that you weren't and pretend right. that right now not doing it is you fighting a disease it it's so disgust it, it disgusts me well it disgusts you and and here's here's the sad part there's a point if this gets drilled into you, and I know that we've all experienced this, I know me and Michelle experienced it young, there's a point 
where you believe it. There mm-hmm. is. Well, yeah. And when when that when that spot happens, it's really really difficult in the beginning when they're selling this to you because you're you're going that's just fucking bullshit. You know, I'm 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 not gonna believe this. Yeah, obviously you don't say that out loud, or else you get more, you know, punishment. I kind of did. I did get more punishment. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then, but eventually, there's enough half truth, and it's so slick. The market is is so slick that eventually you start believing it. Now, in my case, I really didn't. I wanted to hold on to a couple vestiges of myself, and through that mandated treatment stay. I fought it and fought it and fought it and fought it, and then eventually they it became, it became like a little concentration camp where they were like, we're gonna break this kid. Oh yeah, well, I mean, and that's, you know, you and know. that was terrible. I mean, you literally have to admit in treatment, you admit I am powerless, I am a, a, ho- a basically a hopeless addict, and and I will do whatever I have to do to stay clean and sober one day at a time. Yeah, and you have to tell me what that is. You yeah, know, yeah, I mean, that, that's, it, so it is sad. demoralizing. And here's the thing. I was just reading a book, uh, this book on preference falsification. It's called Private Truths, Public Lies or something like that. And they're going way, uh, through all of these ways that um, people are sort of forced to parrot these things they don't believe. And there was a, there was a, they're, they're recording this old piece about grocer, about a grocer in, uh, in in Russia, in Soviet Union, they had to uh, hang a sign up in the window that says that he supports the regime, whatever, whatever it says, right? right? Like right. Mm-hmm. I love Putin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're talking. I don't know the Gorbachev. We're talking about Khrushchev. Khrushchev. We're talking way back. Right. And but like that, you know. And he may not believe that, but he has to do that. It's not that he has to. He could not hang it up. But then somebody will go, oh. Not support. Right. Yeah, you, you mm. don't support. And, and, you know, he's talking about what is the damaging effect. And, and whenever they would interview people that have lived under these dictatorships, it was having to pretend like you believed in all of these lies and that you held these positions that you don't really hold. You don't really support them, but you're living under it and trying to make your right. life work. Yeah. But not only, it's not enough. That your life is hard and, and to like struggle under some kind of dictatorship and oppression, you have to put up a sign in your window I love that this. says you like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and 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 what would happen if the guy took it down? He they would replace him with somebody eventually. People would start chattering, you know? And it, this is what this is exactly the kind of thing you go through once you get categorized as an as an That's addict. right. It's like you gotta speak this certain language. You gotta portray your substance use in a certain way. You're not allowed to say it is what I have liked doing and it's what I might continue to do or I might pull back from it. You're, you're not allowed to just be up front. And, and that was crushing to oppressed people everywhere. And it's crushing to people that enter into this system, whether they realize it or not. Because it's, the thing is, it's very, it's, very attra- it's made very attractive. It, it will is. smooth things over with your husband your wife, the probation department, uh, your parents, whoever else. I had to play and at the first, game. it's yeah. like it's a little bit of an expedient thing. But like you said, then you come to believe it. But also like even if you don't come to believe it, it becomes over time it, was, it crushes you because you're yeah. living a lie. Yeah. Yes. It becomes uh, it becomes laborious and a huge time and resource 
sucker. You know, it yeah, just, it does. You have to go to meetings. You have to play the trade. You're, yes. you're, you're you're playing you're playing a game. Um, you don't. But here's here's how I want to end this. You don't have to play the game. You can read the freedom model. You can learn about what the game entails, how to get out from under it, how to move on with your life, and uh, not be in the recovery trap. Yeah. And if you if you're someone who you're listening to this and it's not you that's the substance user, you you there's someone you love that is that, that acts badly when they're using or drinking, um, treats you badly. Um, know that that's not the substance. That's not the substance. Separate the two things. People that act badly act badly, period. Right, right. And they and they should have consequences for their actions. Um, making it about the substance is a problem. And if you want to know about that, you can read my book, which is The Freedom Model for the Family. And I talk all about that in there um, on separating those two things. Um, because going at somebody, you're basically giving them an excuse. You're giving them the license to misbehave when you say, um, well, every time you drink, you know, you, you, you abuse me or, um, you know, or you're sleeping around or whatever it is. Um, don't, don't blame the alcohol for that. Just, just go directly to what the behavior is. Yeah. Um, and because that's not something that people can deny, but a lot of people, when you come at them with, you act badly when you drink, they're going to tell you it's not the alcohol. They're not lying. Right. You yeah. know, they, they they think they can get away with it with you because you're willing to blame the alcohol. Right. Yeah. You're willing um, to play the game. You're willing to play the game. So so it is really important um, to, to know the facts about about how that all works. Um, and, and there are ways to to talk to somebody and approach them if you think that their substance use is a problem um, that where you can uh, where you can approach them in a way that is a lot more palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than productive. Um, productive, rather than saying, you know, you're you're an alcoholic and you have to quit and you can never drink. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. Yeah. what many people's criticism of drug use is that it's an easy, quick fix that screws you over in the long run. Well, that's exactly what trying to trick people into abstaining by convincing them they have a disease that will make them drink endlessly like a zombie if they ever have a single drink. This is a shortcut. This is a let me try to get an immediate effect mm-hmm. to sort of get an immediate effect is you trick somebody into agreeing that they'll quit forever, but you don't actually make them want to quit forever. No. Nope. And then now you're stuck with somebody who over time begins to believe that they can't quit. So as they begin right. to get disenchanted they're they're still identifying more and more as an addict as somebody who can't quit and they become confused and lost and stay stuck in the habit the fact is we should end another ending yeah the last ending over 90 percent of people get over the drug and alcohol problems whether or not they get treatment and only about 20 percent ever get treatment that's right and those 20 percent do not have any higher success rate than the uh, than the other eighty who who go without treatment. Right. Success rate is identical in some ways. It's actually better for untreated in some ways. There's a lot to pick apart with that, like how long it takes them to get yep. over the problem and you know and all of that. But over ninety percent of people get over this with or without treatment, and it becomes a stable recovery. 
right? I'm sorry I used the word recovery. Yeah, but, yeah. but you know. Yeah, but you get the point. It becomes a stable recovery, and we know that because of the trend over time with age, and there's less and less addiction with age, and it's not because they're all dying. It's because, yeah, maybe they have a couple fits and starts of quitting, but, but eventually, eventually their, their they preference changes. permanently reduce or quit to a level that is no longer a problem and they don't turn back. So, Thank you everyone for listening today. If you or someone you know is seeking help for a substance use problem or other habitual behavior problem or you want help moving past recovery, we encourage you to call 888-424-2626 or you can reach us through our website at thefreedommodel.org. At that website, we have many free resources for you, including videos, these podcasts, and our ebooks and digital editions of our full books, uh, The Freedom Model for Addiction and The Freedom Model for the Family, are available for free to our podcast listeners at thefreedommodel.org. Use coupon code FREEDOM100 at checkout for The Freedom Model for Addictions and FAMILY100 for The Freedom Model for the Family. And paperbacks of our books are available on Amazon and other online retailers. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about the retreat. People have been asking about the retreat uh, more since we've been doing lives and podcasts and what what that is. Um, when we started this whole thing, it was uh, back in 1989, we started our first retreat at Baldwin Road in Scotia, New York, and then it moved through the years. But um, for the last 31 years, we've been helping people at our retreat uh, here in upstate New York. And um, if you're in crisis and you need to get out of chaos, and you really need a break, and you really want to learn the freedom model and move on with your life, uh, people come here for two to four weeks. So I just wanted to add that in because uh, we've gotten a lot of messages about that. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Until next time.